Hey, what's happening? And welcome to episode 12. Yes, we've made it a year of the GCSAA podcast presented in partnership with our friends at Bear Environmental Science. I'm your host, Scott Hollister, the editor-in-chief of Golf Course Management Magazine. And I'm glad that you've decided to check out this episode of the podcast. If you haven't already, I would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast wherever it is you get your podcast, whether that's Apple, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and rate and review the podcast on those same services. It really does help the cause when you do that. So please subscribe, rate, and review on this episode of the GCSA podcast. We're going to dive into a topic that I know is uh, top of mind at this time of year for many turfgrass managers, especially in the southern United States and in the transition zone, and that is the control of POA annua. For some supers in other parts of the country, POA is definitely uh, the turfgrass of choice for their putting surfaces, uh, but for a growing number of superintendents, POA is a weed, plain and simple. So we are excited to speak with one of the real experts in the field of POA control, and that is Dr. Jim Brosnan from the University of Tennessee. Dr. Brosnan is going to give us a primer on the issues facing superintendents and some advice on the best control options for POA. We will also touch on some of his observations on other challenges facing superintendents agronomically in 2019 and what might be ahead for them as we move into the fall and winter. So we are excited to have someone the caliber of Dr. Jim Brosnan join us on this episode of the GCSA podcast. We are also excited for this episode because it's the first uh, where we've worked closely with GCSAA's education department to make the podcast a truly uh, educational episode, and I did use air quotes uh, there. Now, I like to think that all of our uh, episodes of the podcast have been educational uh, to one extent or another, but for this one, we are actually offering GCSA members education points just for listening to this episode. Later in the podcast, we will provide a, an approval code that you can enter online or or by calling GCSAA to earn .05 education points for taking the time to listen to this episode. We will repeat that code a couple of times during the podcast, and you'll also be able to find it in the show notes for this episode. Uh, so if you're a GCSA member, make sure you've got a pen and paper ready to jot that code down when we mention it. And again, uh, I will mention that on a couple of different occasions throughout the podcast. As always, we want to thank the good people at Bear Environmental Science for their continuing support of this podcast. As anyone who has worked with Bear can tell you, they are a company committed to helping customers thrive through a combination of great technical expertise and innovative solutions like Bear's Stress Guard fungicide products. You can learn more about Bear and the Stress Guard product line by going to environmentalscience.bear.us/stressguard. Once again, that is environmentalscience.bear.us/stressguard. Without further ado, let's dive into episode 12 of the GCSA podcast, an episode that we're calling POA is on the way, featuring Dr. Jim Brosnan from the University of Tennessee. Well, I want to start today's podcast with a little history lesson, and I want to take you uh, all the way back to August of 2018. That's right, one year ago, ancient history. But when we first began conversations here at GCSA about starting a podcast. Uh, I was all in. It was something I'd wanted to do in my role with with GCM uh, for quite some time, and the association really, really backed it. And one of the first things that we did as we were discussing potential uh, content for the podcast was talk about tying in uh, educational topics with what we were doing on the podcast. And it's taken us about a year to get everything figured out, and uh, um, but. We have done that, and I've had some great conversations with folks in GCSA's education department um, about presenting content that is worthy of education points. And as I mentioned in the intro, 
This podcast will uh, give GCSA members .05 education points for listening. And as we go along through the podcast, you'll get the approval code for all that. But uh, we decided we needed someone other than than myself and and my uh, half informed uh, ramblings to provide actual educational content. So very excited in this episode of the podcast to uh, speak with Dr. Jim Brosnan. Jim is a PhD. He's a professor in plant science department at the University of Tennessee. You can find him on Twitter at UT Turf Weeds. That's his handle there. Uh, Jim has a bachelor in turfgrass science from Penn State a master's in plant, soil, and insect science from UMass, and a PhD in agronomy, uh, also from Penn State. Uh, Dr. Brosnan heads the uh, University of Tennessee's Weed Diagnostic Center, and his research focuses on effective and economical strategies for broadleaf and grassy weed control in various turf grass systems, including golf courses. And uh, uh, for those who have uh, taken webinars or classes at the golf industry show you're very familiar with dr brosnan he's been very active with gcsa very active with the sports turf managers association weed science society of america and the southern weed science society and with all of that i will now uh introduce dr jim brosnan jim how are you today good scott how are you I'm doing excellent, and I uh, again I appreciate you bringing uh, uh, a bit of an educated approach to this uh, this podcast. And it's a podcast that we are uh, calling "Poa is on the way," and that's because a lot of turf grass managers in the uh, southern United States and in the transition zone are are going to start feeling those the effects of Poa uh, in their plain surfaces in the coming months. So uh, I'm excited to kind of have you dive into that and give give our listeners uh, some tips on what to look for. Uh, and things of that nature. But before we get going, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of introduce yourself uh, to the listeners and really just kind of talk about your path to a career in agronomy and in turf grass management. Even we've had superintendents, we've had equipment managers, we've had others in golf. And I always like to give them an opportunity to just uh, uh, kind of tell folks uh, their path into into this business because it's always interesting. So um, how did you get to to where you are right now? And, uh, and how did you get into a career in turf grass management? Well, I, I kind of grew up around it. Uh, I played competitive golf in high school and uh, quickly realized that didn't really have the skill set where golf was going to be a, a uh, future for me. Um, so decided when I was looking at uh, schools to uh, maybe go the landscape, landscape architecture route. Um, my thought there was that I would do golf course design and I enrolled in the landscape architecture program at Penn state and very quickly realized that, uh, I didn't really have, uh, the artistic skill set to hang in landscape architecture. Number one, that landscape architecture. Number two was, uh, a little bit more about the art side and less about placing centerline bunkers and width and angles and fairways. Uh, so I believe I was in that major for about 16 days until the first homework assignment was due and then quickly uh, transferred into the turf program there. And it was a natural fit, again, not only with the golf side growing up. Uh, my father ran a home lawn care company uh, for his career, and I was kind of around the business um, all the time going through it. When you started that, were you were you interested initially as a a job as a superintendent, or did did the did the research side and really the scientific side of it hold more appeal for you? Well, I mean, I think it, anybody who gets into the turf major probably starts with the focus on the applied side, 
in large part because you don't know that the research side exists. I sure didn't. That's right. Um, and I can remember a conversation with my with my dad when I was going to transfer into turf and and he really encouraged me that if I was going to do this that I should get into the research side and you know like most 18 19 year old kids I didn't really listen at the time and that that came to fruition though I went as a sophomore at Penn State I wanted to do my internship uh, at a golf course and I went to visit uh, Dr. Tom Wachke, uh, who ran the internship program at the time, right. and he wasn't going to let me go. And he said, you're too young. You have to go on your internship when you're a junior. And I pushed him and pushed him and pushed him. And then he pushed back and said, well, why do you, wh- you want to go on your internship so badly? And I said, well, I want to graduate. He said, well, what do you want to do after you graduate? Do you want to be a golf course superintendent? And I said, well, I don't really think so. And... He said, well, do you want to work on a sports field or work in lawn care? And he said, I, I don't really think so. And he goes, well, wh- what do you like the most about my class? And I told Dr. Watsky, I said, well, I really like that you tell us all of these things that we can do for certain situations or certain problems, but you never tell us why they work. And he said, well, why don't we do this? Why don't you work for me this summer as an undergraduate research assistant? And you can do your internship with me. Uh, we'll give you a special research project. And I fell in love with research that summer and have really never looked back. And, and, and Dr. Watsky, that's a heck of a mentor to have, um, uh, and, and at least offering you in, uh, inroads in, into the business. There, there are a few better uh, out there, so I can certainly see why why that would uh, hold appeal uh, to you. So you finished, you went back to uh, to Penn State. Uh, got your PhD there. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your role there at the University of Tennessee? So I am a professor in the plant sciences department here at UT. Uh, started in 2008. Kind of had a little bit of a circuitous path to get here. Uh, I finished my PhD at Penn State uh, in 2007 and started immediately thereafter on the faculty at the University of Hawaii in Honolulu. Very nice. uh, month and a half later. And that was a really great experience. Uh, great industry in Hawaii, great group of golf course superintendents I worked with and it jumped into a lot of really applied, particularly warm season focused uh, weed problems right away. And Hawaii, for all the good there was in the industry and, and the group that was there to work with, it is a difficult place to, uh, to, to live and get established as a young person. And um, for several reasons to get back on the East Coast and closer to my family, the job at Tennessee opened and I was lucky enough to get it. It's been, it's been a really great fit, um, uh, in terms of not only for me personally, but professionally, you know, it's been fun to be part of a, a really growing turf team here, myself, sure. uh, John Sorokin and Brandon Horvath and Tom Samples. We really gel very nicely as a group and our program's been growing, um, uh, you know, over the years and, and continues to grow today. And we've got a wonderful group of superintendents in the state who are really passionate about what they do and passionate about supporting UT and, and UT's uh, work in the industry. And it's, it's really been good all around. And, you know, for me, day to day interactions with superintendents, you know, I, I, I do a lot of extension work and that certainly gets me uh, connected to the superintendents in our state. And, you know, on the topic of today's podcast, uh, one of the things that we've done a lot of work on is POA control, and uh, we do that on golf courses for the most part to get a look at what our uh, control strategies that we're researching do across the regions of the state. Because for us, East Tennessee, Middle Tennessee, and West Tennessee are distinctly different regions 
uh, from an environmental standpoint and from a grass standpoint. And we want to know if, if we prescribe something as a polo control strategy, we want to make sure it's going to work um, statewide. Also, on that note, uh, GCSAA has supported my program here. We're just finishing up a survey of annual bluegrass populations on golf courses. Uh, EIFG was kind enough to fund that work, and we've got some really great information now about how our annual bluegrass populations on Tennessee golf courses uh, not only vary from one another regionally, but what are our baseline levels of herbicide resistance uh, that are out there in the industry, and the numbers are... Uh, shockingly high that's that's uh that's all awesome information i'm sure that'll that'll be, that will interest uh superintendents not just in in the state of tennessee but really uh, across the nation Any, anywhere where poa is a uh is an issue and I, I found it interesting that you were talking about the three very distinct uh, kind of regions in tennessee and again i think those can be applied to a much broader section of the country because every every part of the country will have a little bit might have a section where it's, you know, it's closer to the transition zone or a section where it's much, much closer to what you would find in the southern U.S. and the warmer uh, conditions. So I think there's a lot of applicable information uh, that will go over today um, for people not just in Tennessee or not just in the southern U.S. or the transition zone, but really uh, other parts of the country as well. So I'll, I'll start off and I'll ask you uh, as being the uh, being the neophyte who, again, knows just enough to be dangerous about agronomy. Uh, uh, and, and POA, uh, why don't you just kind of begin to tell us that uh, we've, we've sort of established that POA is a growing concern for, for superintendents. Uh, how and when are these issues manifesting themselves? And maybe maybe tell the listeners what superintendents should be looking for and when they should be looking for them uh, as they relate to POA. So, uh, you know, for us, for this, the purposes of this conversation, we're going to talk about POA infestations in warm season turf grass. So uh, we usually see these this issue come when Bermuda grass and zoysia grass and other warm season species go dormant uh, in the fall. And then that continues throughout the winter and then the early spring. And I get asked often, well, you know, this is real. We don't have a lot of play when this um, issue is at its worst, why is it so important? And I'll contend that this is an important issue because it allows superintendents to start the year with good momentum. You know, if you think about what's the worst thing that you can have as a superintendent to start your year is, you know, you come into here in Tennessee, whether it's February or March, you're trying to come out of dormancy and you've got POA all over the golf course and you've got members that want to get out and play because we've got weather that's warm enough to do that. And the masters is right around the corner. You just don't get off to the year from a really good start from a momentum standpoint where if you put the effort in to think about a really well-designed POA control program, the calendar turns, you go into the new golf season, and, and you're pretty clean because superintendents have enough to do to get a golf course ready for the golfing season. It's Absolutely. just one less thing to worry about if you can have your POA program in check. So that is definitely uh, a motivating factor for us in this issue, and it it has certainly become worse as resistance has become more of a problem. Um, the first case of resistance that I worked on, uh, it's a funny story. It was glyphosate resistance. I was on a, a golf course in West Tennessee in 2012 and I was there on an extension visit about root zone construction and they had some layering in the root zone and the club had some resources to maybe 
rebuild some of the greens complexes. And that's why the university was out there that day. And we were walking to the parking lot. Uh, after the visit was complete, the superintendent said to me, hey, have you ever seen Roundup not kill a poa plant? And I said, well, not in a turf situation, but I have in agronomic crops. He goes, well, I got fairways that I've sprayed a lot of Roundup on and the poa never dies. And immediately I said, well, why don't we go have a look at those and let me get my cup cutter and we'll get started here. Uh, and we did that and, and confirmed the first case of glyphosate resistance in um, Bermuda grass uh, on a golf course. And it became one of those issues that the more I talked about it in front of audiences, the more people would come up to me afterwards and say, hey, doc, I think I might have a an issue. Uh, can you come visit me and, and check this out? And now having completed this statewide survey, it's no surprise. I mean, we're finding that over in randomly, randomly going to golf courses and randomly picking holes at those golf courses. Um, 60% of the POA had some level of glyphosate resistance. Over wow. 50% had some level of uh, prodiamine resistance. Over 20% had some level of uh, uh, ALS inhibitor resistance. So that would be something like Revolver or Monument as an ALS inhibiting herbicide. Right. Staggeringly high numbers. Um, and that's just fairway and rough sampling that we didn't do any sampling on greens as part of that project. And I think the Ultradorf superintendents would certainly um, uh, be able to speak to resistance issues on greens becoming uh, uh, worse in recent years. Well, that, yeah, those are, those are, those are really unbelievable numbers. Um, and I, I would assume that that growing, uh, those growing instances of resistance are probably some of the biggest changes that you've seen uh, in, in POA infestations on, uh, on golf courses. Uh, do, do you have any working theories on why, why that is, why that's becoming a more, more prevalent uh, problem? Well, I mean, I think some of this is just kind of natural selection, right? So the, the herbicide is the select, you know, the, the agent we use for selection. And if we, you know, apply a herbicide and it works, anything that is susceptible to that herbicide will be removed and anything that might be resistant for whatever reason would remain. And what we see, I like to talk to superintendents about the herbicide is almost like a sieve that it's sieving out the susceptible individuals and it'll leave behind anything that might be resistant. Well, what we see often is that superintendents are using the same herbicide every single year in the same sieve. And if you do that for enough years in a row, you've now removed all the susceptible plants at your golf course or good numbers of them, I should say, and you're going to have more and more resistance. So our big push from an education standpoint is to try to encourage superintendents to really think through this problem in advance and to not do what you've always done and expect a different result because that's the definition of insanity. Right. Uh, and to, to, to do this and really take charge of kind of your own agronomic decision on this issue, because as these resistance issues have worsened, it's become more important to do that and to plan ahead. So, you know, when we do statewide trial work uh, for POA control, we try to like distill it down into what are the big takeaways for the next year. So um, I recently published a blog post on Medium and I, I tweeted this out as well with kind of the, the key takeaways for the season. And, you know, for us, the, the number one takeaway every year is to plan in advance. And, and I'll contend that the best superintendents in this country they already know what they're going to be doing for POA control in the 2020 slash 2021 fall winter. 
uh, never mind what they're going to do this fall, that they're planning a year or two ahead because we know if we've got to rotate and change what we do, um, we've got to do that every single year. So they've got, uh, you know, one to three year plans in place uh, of how they're going to do that. The, uh, the next thing is, you know, what we've found is, you know, we call it a one shot program. So the days of a, a one shot program where I'm going to make one application of one product to try to control annual bluegrass, they're, they're probably over. Um, I think we evaluated 17 one shot programs last year at three locations across Tennessee and only a handful, maybe two or three, um, gave us what we would call excellent POA control by master's week this year. Uh, so early April, right. uh, you just don't have the reliability there in large part for these resistance issues. And also because of the, you know, erratic weather that seems to be a problem every single year. What we're encouraging superintendents to do is, um, we're kind of come up with monikers for them to remember this. So we're calling it either a one, two punch program where you make one application in the fall and then you come back with something else in the spring to clean up anything that may have come through your initial treatment or a, a zone defense program where if we think about a zone defense in football, you know, you've got players of different positions working together to achieve a goal. So in this conversation, it would be herbicides of different modes of action put together to try to achieve a goal of having POA-free turf or as close to that as possible. And we see every year that if we implement either these one-two punch programs or these zone defense programs where we can mix products together and apply a little bit later on in the season, we, we, that's where we have our best results. Well, when you when you use uh, phrases like zone defense and one two punch, those are the kinds of things that I can understand. So I hope the superintendent can understand them too. So I appreciate you going down that road with me. Let's take a real quick break here, and I will give the listeners some information on uh, the approval code uh, for the GCSA education points. When we come back, let's uh, uh, talk a little bit about. Uh, you t- mentioned those Ultradorf uh, uh, greens. Let's talk about uh, kind of some of the things you're seeing in the greens. So we will be right back. We'll get back to POA is on the way in our conversation with Dr. Jim Brosnan from the University of Tennessee in just a minute. But as I mentioned in the open, GCSAA members listening to this episode of the GCSAA podcast are eligible for .05 education points. And to receive those education points, you will need the following approval code, and that code is 999-22726. Dash two nine 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 nine. You can record that code using the online education point affidavit in the submit points area of the GCSAA website at gcsaa.org. And by using the online affidavit, your education points will automatically populate your educational history. Uh, if you do not have access to the internet, you can always call GCSAA at 800-472-7878 and submit that code by phone. Again, that approval code for listening to this episode of the GCSAA podcast is 999-22726-29999. And you can, uh, I will repeat that code at the end of the podcast, and you can also go to the show notes on this episode uh, to find that code. So now let's head back to our conversation with Dr. Jim Brosnan. Okay, we're back with Dr. Jim Brosnan, and we are talking uh, POA control. Uh, in the southern U.S. in the transition zone, really any warm season uh, turf grass playing surfaces. Uh, you talked about, uh, earlier, Jim, about a lot of the work you have done in fairways and roughs, uh, areas like that. Um, 
Let, let's turn to Greens just very quickly. Um, and in particular, the Bermuda, Bermuda grass greens, obviously. Uh, how do strategies and what you're seeing in greens kind of differ from what you see and what you might recommend for other parts of the golf course? Well, I mean, I think with any conversation about greens, wherever you are in the country, it's, it's, it's the most high dollar acreage on a golf course, right? So it's where right. we have to, uh, be as careful as possible because an issue on greens becomes a big issue really fast. Um, for us in the transition zone in the south, I mean, we, we have more cases of resistance on greens um, than we had maybe three or four years ago. This is in large part due to the fact we don't have a lot of products labeled for use on greens. So, you know, if I'm a golf course superintendent, I'm managing an ultra dwarf and something like revolvers done me well for annual bluegrass control. I, I can see how one would continue to use that every year when we don't have a lot of alternatives of which we can rotate to. Uh, so that's led to kind of this. Um, increase in ALS resistance on greens. And the problem now is we don't have a lot of things we can use to clean that up. Um, there is a product curb, uh, which is made by Corteva uh, that has labeling for use on the ultra dwarfs. And we have tested this and we'll continue to test it. Um, there's a specific uh, supplemental label for greens applications and it can do well. But my fear there is that, you know, if you're one who's evolved resistance to revolver, let's say, and now you're going to rotate into using curb instead, if you just continue to use curb down the line, we're going to have issues of, of curb resistance. Right. Uh, we already have documented cases of that, not on greens, but I know that my colleague at the University of Georgia, uh, Dr. Patrick McCullough, has confirmed at least one case in annual bluegrass curb resistance. Um, and we also have globally uh, in other countries where curb is used for POA control, uh, situations where continued use has led to enhanced degradation of that herbicide in soil by the microbial community. So we can't just go 100% on the curb train and, and, and think that's going to solve all of our problems. So we continue to research other other approaches to this. You know, I contend to superintendents right now that, you know, I heard Dr. Burt McCarty at Clemson say this years ago, and I've always remembered it, when you're talking about weed management on greens, it, it might not be fun, but the, the safest, most effective way is probably mechanical removal, um, whether that's with a, an old pocket knife or some other, other sort of instrument. Um, just to pop those polo plants out based on growth hobbit is definitely going to be the best combination of efficacy and safety. And it becomes a challenge. I know that my uh, golf course superintendents, uh, friends in the transition zone world know that it seems like when you put your first, uh, you have your first covering event where you cover the greens with winter protective covers that I joke that almost acts like POA fertilizer that you pull the covers <laughs> off and it warms up and then man, there's, there's all your POA that you had there. And I don't know if it's the, the, the extra warmth from the cover or what, but it is, uh, Certainly, that's when we see polar problems on ultra dwarfs and the transitions don't really jump is after covering. So we, we have a lot more work to do on this. Um, there's no good solution right now, um, but it is something that I know myself and my other colleagues in beat science are uh, certainly focused on. You've talked, to, you, you mentioned uh, earlier glyphosate and, and in its role uh, in, in control. Um, obviously a bit of a hot button topic, uh, just really this last year and not just as it relates to golf courses, just to, it's general use. Uh, I, I'm curious, how do you think the kind of ongoing discussion and issues with glyphosate will affect 
um, its use as a, as POA control. And as someone who's who's in the business, and I'm sure others outside the business may have brought this topic up to you, uh, from a scientific perspective, how, how do you respond to, uh, uh, to discussions of glyphosate, um, its safety, things of that nature? Well, this has certainly been the year of the glyphosate questions. Uh, for 2009 <laughs> will be remembered at least in the turf grass extension and academia side, if you're in weed science of the year that you answered glyphosate questions. Um, I predict that superintendents are going to be asked about this, whether it's from uh, members, golfers, or other interested parties. It might even be people that aren't affiliated with the golf course that they see right. it, um, you know, socially uh, when they're at events at home or elsewhere. Uh, one of the things that we did at Tennessee is we tried to produce a document to help Myself and all of the weed science uh, faculty here, those working in agronomic crops and other areas, we drafted in a frequently asked question sheet that you can download off my website, the UT Extension website, to try to give a superintendent or an end user some a reference that they could go to. Because at the end of the day, you know the the science here is is on is on the side of the applicator. Um, you know our position as UT Extension is that. Glyphosate is labeled for weed management in the state of Tennessee, and until that changes, we recommend the use of glyphosate according to label directions. Um, you know, the, the process of uh, getting a product labeled and the EPA re-registration review, you know, as a university, we support the thoroughness of that process and uh, really see no reason to change that. And you have seen EPA even follow up with somewhat Un, I'd say unprecedented remarks about glyphosate reaffirming what they had said in, in previous years. And I know in, in you know, working with um, Tennessee GCSAA and speaking about this issue, uh, I shared this document with them and had many superintendents ask for it because they were getting questions from members um, and, and players, if you will, um, particularly those at like municipal golf courses or city run golf courses. So I do think it's something to be aware of. Um, I think that we do have alternatives to glyphosate. If you choose to use them for POA control and dormant warm season turf, the, um, the alternatives would be uh, glufosinate, which is sold as Finale. I believe there's a, a new farm a glufosinate product called Cheetah Pro uh, or Diquat, which is sold as uh, Reward. I mean, those are non-selective herbicides. Uh, with efficacy for POA control, um, they have maybe some advantages in that they're not glyphosate to certain individuals, but they certainly have disadvantages. Um, biggest disadvantage that I can see is, is use rate. Uh, when we think about a glyphosate application uh, for POA control and dormant Bermuda grass or dormant uh, warm season turf, I should say, you're looking at probably 16 to 32 ounces of product per acre. Uh, something like Finale, for example, you're looking at six quarts of product per acre. And from an acute toxicity standpoint, and I am not a toxicologist, but I understand LD50s uh, and how those numbers get on labels, the alternatives tend to have higher, or excuse me, lower LD50 values, so they are more uh, hazardous from an acute toxicity standpoint um, than glyphosate. So now we're taking something that's from an acute toxicity standpoint, more hazardous, and we're applying more of it into the environment, um, that does not seem like anything that I could get behind and wanting to do based on the rationale that one might do that. So 
that's that's kind of where we're at. I mean, glyphosate as a as a poa control option, it's very effective to the extent that we have lots of glyphosate resistance from continued glyphosate that's, use. That's um, right. So I mean, it's it's one of those things that we have superintendents, at least in Tennessee, that no longer can use glyphosate because their populations have evolved resistance and they've been put into some other strategies. But I do predict that there will be superintendents that are pushed to alternatives to glyphosate for reasons that might not be biologically based. Right, right. And it, it, absolutely a hot-button issue, absolutely an emotional one for, for some people. And you're exactly right. The superintendents are going to have to answer these questions uh, as an association at GCSAA. Um, our, our approach has been largely from a, you know, pr- just providing guidance to, to members on how to answer those questions. And we fall really, uh, lockstep in line with what you, uh, and, and everyone at the University of Tennessee produced in that FAQ, you know, uh, stick to the facts, try to make it, uh, as non-emotional as, as possible. And that, and that could be a challenge. Uh, but that's the, the great advice from you. And it's, a uh, uh Good, good to see that you guys were, were proactive, uh, about that, but, uh, in what is a, as I mentioned, a hot button issue. So, uh, Jim, uh, really appreciate your, your time and your expertise today. Uh, uh, throw one, one last question at you and, uh, maybe just, uh, any other things that you and superintendents in, in Tennessee are, you want them to be on the lookout for as we head into the fall and winter seasons of this year? Just any, agronomic landmines that that you're kind of uh, kind of warning uh, superintendents in your area about? Yeah, I mean, I think number one would be just to, to plan ahead. You know, we're, we're working on trying to have an emergence model for when uh, Inu bluegrass emerges on golf courses in our state and in other um, in other states. Uh, this has been driven. Uh, my colleague and former student, Dr. Matt Elmore at Rutgers, has done a really good job generating a goosegrass emergence model for New Jersey, and we're trying to take the same rationale now and apply it to POA here in the transition zone. And I think that's important because a lot of our applications, you know, if you're using a pre-emergence product and you've put it out now after emergence, obviously your efficacy is going to be compromised. Um, so I think really having a plan in advance of what you're going to do and how you're going to do it um, and the, the discipline to stick to that plan uh, is important. And then the other thing that I'd encourage superintendents to do is to fight the urge to rationalize a, poor, a situation where we have poor control from a program. Um, you know, if you're making an application and you're supposed to get effective POA control, and maybe you've made this application for a number of years now and it's not working. You know, it's very easy to, to blame the weather, uh, the spray tech, the mix, the, uh, how the product was mixed in the tank, calibration. There's a number of different, um, excuses I've heard about poor applications. And, you know, it, it should be a red flag. If you, if you apply a product for POA control, particularly a post emergence product for POA control and it does not work. That should be a red flag to do something. Um, I like to talk about in seminars that, you know, if you went out and made a fungicide application for dollar spot and you came into work the next day and your greens were littered with dollar spot, you probably would do something about that. And uh, (laughs) far often in turf, we, at least in the weed science side of turf, I see kind of a shrug the shoulders. We'll get them next time attitude when it comes to this idea about poet control. Uh, particularly with post products. So 
Uh, I would be on the lookout for failed applications. Not all failed applications will be resistance related, uh, but it is definitely a red flag to ask for more help and more information. All, all great advice. And uh, uh, if, if someone like me learned a lot uh, from our conversation today, Jim, I, I hope that uh, uh, some of the more trained agronomists uh, in our listening audience did as well. I really appreciate uh, you taking some time uh, to talk with us today. Again, uh, you can follow uh, uh, Dr. Brosnan on Twitter if you're so inclined. His handle is UT Turf Weeds. And Jim, thank you again for your time. Uh, really appreciate it and hope we can do it again here sometime soon. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Scott. Really enjoyed it. So that's a wrap on episode 12 of the GCSAA podcast, an episode that we're calling POA is on the way. Big thanks to Dr. Jim Brosnan from the University of Tennessee for his time and expertise today. And I also want to uh, give a shout out to Lisa Wick, Diana Kern, and all our friends in the education department at GCSAA for their help in making this the very first GCSA podcast that awards education points to GCSAA members who take the time to listen. To get those points, and that is point zero five education Education points. You're going to need the following approval code, and that code is 999-22726-29999. And you're going to take that code, and you can record that either online um, using the education point affidavit in the submit points area of the GCSAA website at gcsaa.org. And by doing that, uh, going online to register that, of course, your education points will automatically populate your educational history. You can also submit that code by phone by calling GCSAA at 800-472-7878. Once again, I'm going to repeat it one more time. The approval code for this episode of the podcast is 999-22726-2999. As always, I want to give a big thanks to uh, the producer of this podcast, Mr. Evan Bissell. Uh, shout out to all our friends at Bear Environmental Science who support this podcast as our presenting partner. And we will be back later this month with more on the GCSAA podcast. But until then, on behalf of everyone here at GCSAA headquarters in Lawrence, Kansas, the nine members of GCSAA's National Board of Directors and the more than 18,000 members of the association worldwide, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you again soon on another episode of the GCSA podcast. Be well.